Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and we have a special month here on the Warfare Podcast. It is CIA month to mark 75 years since President Truman gave the US Central Intelligence Agency its top secret mandate I've decided to run a special mini-series all through December with world-leading CIA experts. I've been fascinated by the CIA for years, and this gives us the opportunity to take a deep dive into everything CIA, from the remarkable drone program to the most unbelievable accounts of how the CIA recruited former Nazis after the Second World War. And to kick us off today, I've invited the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist and National Book Award winning author Tim Weiner onto the podcast. Tim is the author of Legacy of Ashes, the history of the CIA. And he takes us through the organization's most controversial military coups, assassinations, and intelligence gathering operations. We even get to hear about the many, some would say too many attempts to blow up Cuba's Fidel Castro. So make sure you don't miss out, subscribe and drop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and share us far and wide with everyone who loves history. But here is Tim Weiner on the history of the CIA. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Very well, James. Thanks. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast, especially as part of our special month, I guess, marking 75 years since the start of the CIA. And, well, we need to start there. Maybe you could start by telling us what the CIA is. How does it differ to the FBI, which is a much, much older organization? Right. Well, the FBI is both a criminal investigative agency and has struggled over the years to also be an intelligence agency. It's not very good at that. A criminal investigator confronted with a bad actor, with an evildoer, wants to string him up, whereas a spy wants to string him along, find out what he knows, find out who he loves, who he hates. And the FBI and the CIA are very much like chalk and cheese. The CIA was formally created, as he said, 75 years ago in the fall of 1947. And the original impetus was to prevent the next Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor had happened in part as a surprise attack because while the elements of intelligence that could have predicted and foreseen the attack were all there, they were scattered like pearls that haven't been strung into a necklace. 
And the idea here was that the United States, as the world's sole superpower, solely in possession of the atomic bomb, needed a permanent peacetime civilian intelligence service to gather and analyze all known thought and all available knowledge, and to additionally try and do so through espionage. Now, America had never had such an intelligence service. We were absolute beginners, whereas, of course, the Russians had been at this since the time of Peter the Great. The British had been at it since the time of Queen Elizabeth I. And the Chinese had been at it since Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War, 26 centuries before. So in the beginning, we knew nothing. The original impetus that the CIA would gather and analyze intelligence as its sole function was quickly overtaken by events in the fall and winter of 1947 and the spring of 1948. What had happened was that Joe Stalin was beginning to march westward and to one by one capture the nations of Eastern Europe. No one knew what Stalin wanted and how far he would go. That winter, the charge d'affaires in the American embassy in Moscow, a gentleman named George Kennan, was asked by the White House to analyze, to report what did the Russians want? What were they after? Who were these people who had been the great ally of the United States in the Second World War? And we knew nothing. Kennan, in the first of several reports, said that the Russians were not susceptible to the force of logic, but to the logic of force. And he later proposed that the CIA organize itself as an instrument of political warfare, prepare to conduct not just espionage, but sabotage, support for underground resistance armies to fight the Soviets, everything from coercive diplomacy to propaganda to paramilitary operations. So the CIA is literally a central intelligence agency. It's a way after the Second World War for the US to bring all of those strands of intelligence together to stop another Pearl Harbor happening. And this was something that was warned about within Roberta Wallstatter's writings about warning and decision. She was saying over and over again that this could happen again to the United States. There could be another surprise attack. So it kind of makes sense in this new Cold War world that the CIA becomes the spearhead. It becomes a Cold War warrior. What's some of its first key missions? In the spring and summer of 1948, the post-war government of Italy was set to hold its first elections. The Communist Party of Italy was quite strong. It had been the premier anti-fascist organization when Mussolini was in full evil flower. And the Christian Democrats were quite weak and disorganized. It was feared in Washington that if the communists gained power in Italy through the ballot box, that within an instant, the Soviet army would encircle the Vatican and that Western Europe would fall as the nations of Eastern Europe had fallen. First, it would be Italy, then it would be France. And so the CIA, in a rather hurried manner, proposed to fight fire with fire, since the Soviets were supporting the Italian Communist Party. The CIA would support the Christian Democrats, and they did so with the most useful, effective, and powerful weapon the CIA has ever used, which is tall, green stacks of cold cash. 
Uh, support went to politicians, to priests, for propaganda operations, for radio operations, for wall posters. And it was a close run thing, but the Christian Democrats won. Well, this fired the imagination of people in Washington and set the CIA up to those who knew as the pointed end of the spear of American foreign policy. I see. So this is a classic political influence operation. And because it's deemed to be a major success, it's knocked communism back on its heels in Europe. It must be a massive success into the future. And how do you ensure that's the case? Well, you pump far more money into it. From this point, do we start to see the funds go up at the CIA? Do we start to see its mission remit starting to broaden? Around the time that the Soviets exploded their first nuclear weapon, it was feared in Washington that World War III was at hand. And it was imagined that uh, Soviet tax would come pouring through the Fulda Gap in Germany and quickly overrun the still weakened nations of Western Europe. So in 48 and in 49, several things happened, more or less all at once. The Marshall Plan, which over five years delivered nearly $14 billion worth of aid to the nations of Europe for post-war reconstruction. And the Marshall Plan had a little trap door in it through which hundreds of millions of dollars went to finance the operations of the Central Intelligence Agency. These operations, starting in 1949, were paramilitary missions to take recruited foreign agents, Ukrainians, Albanians, Russians, Poles, and to parachute them behind the Iron Curtain to set up paramilitary groups and to link up with real or, as it developed, imagined resistance groups to repel Soviet forces in the event of war and to try and, if possible, subvert or overthrow the communist governments in the Soviet bloc. Without exception, these missions failed miserably and resulted in the deaths of still uncounted hundreds of recruited foreign agents, beginning with an operation in Ukraine in 1949 and continuing through Albania to Poland to Russia and elsewhere. The primary reason that these were suicide missions was that at the same time in 1949, the British representative of British intelligence arrived to take up his post in Washington. And that was Kim Philby. Your listeners will recognize the name, I take it. I think we most certainly will. But for those who don't around the world, Tim, tell us who Philby was. Philby had worked with American intelligence operatives in London during World War II. He was a properly educated Cambridge gentleman. And from the 1930s onward, he had been a Soviet spy who rose to the top of the British intelligence service, came to Washington, quickly befriended the top brass at the CIA and plotted these missions with them. The British were involved in the Albanian operation. They were involved in several other of these paramilitary missions. And of course, everything that the CIA knew and thought and planned about these operations quickly made its way to Moscow via Kim Philby. So from 1949 to 1952, whatever the CIA was plotting in the realm of covert operations and paramilitary missions was stolen by Philby, transmitted to Moscow. And so when the brave Ukrainian Albanian recruits were parachuted behind enemy lines, they were either captured and turned into double agents meaning they were forced to transmit back to the CIA 
everything's great, we're doing well, send more men, send more money, send more guns, or they were killed. These operations culminated in a very large operation against Poland. In 1952, the CIA believed that there was an underground resistance army whose initials in Poland were in English, W-I-N, win. And this underground army was gaining in strength. The CIA sent men, it sent weapons, it sent $5 million in gold bullion, in parachutes over the Iron Curtain into Poland, until in late 1952, the Wynn Underground Army asked the CIA to parachute an American general into Poland to lead these forces. And this started some head scratching back at CIA headquarters. And finally, in Christmas week of 1952, the Polish government radio went on the air and essentially said, ha, ha, ha. It was a five-year-long deception operation that totally snookered the CIA. And the Polish communists announced gleefully that they were taking the $5 million in gold and sending it to the Communist Party in Italy. Wow. So what you're saying here is on top of the fact that, you know, the Marshall Plan was what? Something like 13.5 billion US dollars or something. Apart from the fact that some proportion of that was being funneled through with what the CIA thought were successful missions, but actually going into the hands of the communists, there was actual gold bullion being exchanged here and helping to prop up regimes and counter some of the successful missions the CIA had done in the first place at the end of the 1940s. Well, thanks largely in part to our friends at British intelligence. And Philby isn't discovered until the 1960s, is he, Tim? Well, no, in 52, he was sent home under a great cloud, along with his colleagues, uh, Mr. McLean and Mr. Burgess. But uh, yes, he was vetted and cleared by the boffins down at British intelligence headquarters, and it was not until 1962 that he finally fled to Moscow. So where does this leave the CIA, apart from not being very trustful of British intelligence? Do they start to stray into new types of missions? They did exactly the same thing throughout the Korean War, parachuting recruited foreign agents behind enemy lines. Their operations in Seoul and Tokyo were completely penetrated by communist agents. Those were really suicide missions, and the death toll went well over the hundreds into the thousands. They did the same in China after Mao took over China. In fact, two CIA officers were captured and held by communist China for 20 years. As I said, in the beginning, we knew nothing. We were absolute beginners at this. And the tragedy was that the early CIA thought they could operate as the wartime SOE, Special Operations Executive, and its junior partner, the American OSS, thought they could operate in the Cold War as they had operated during World War II, when Churchill gave them the mission to set Europe ablaze. They couldn't, because a contested battlefield is very different from the closed society behind the Iron Curtain. It was acknowledged by the mid-50s that these operations were not worth the cost in lives, in money, and in the damage that they did to the overall structure of the CIA. It was further deemed that it would not be possible through covert operations to roll the Soviets back to the borders of Mother Russia, as had been hoped and dreamed. And by 1953, at the end of the Korean War, Dwight Eisenhower, the new president of the United States, 
a man who knew something about secret operations, having conducted the D-Day invasion, determined that if the United States were not to bankrupt itself in the Cold War through the infinite appetites of what he later called the military-industrial complex, that it would have to deter global communism through covert operations of a different nature. How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I know from the history of this that we go through a massive period of growth in terms of the missiles and the warheads that are in the American arsenal, but is it under Eisenhower during this period that we start to see the CIA cutting its teeth in coups all around the world? Paramilitary missions as such aimed at undermining the Kremlin had been deemed a failure. So Eisenhower looked out upon the world and saw that the Cold War would be fought in every nation on Earth. Joe Stalin had just died. It was hoped that this would set the Soviets back on their heels a bit. And so attention turned to what was then becoming known as the Third World. Attention was focused on Iran, and the Americans' attention was focused on Iran by none other than the newly empowered Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh had come to power, and Mossadegh proposed to not let the British screw Iran out of its oil, as it had been doing for more than 40 years, beginning in 1912, when Winston Churchill was the first Lord of the Admiralty and determined it would be a good thing to convert the British Navy from coal-burning to oil-burning ships. 
the Iranians were getting screwed on the deal. And when Mohammad Mossadegh said, I am nationalizing Iranian oil and we are going to get a fair deal out of this, Sir Winston was quite incensed and he wanted his goddamned oil back. Because it wasn't just the fact that this was supplying the British military, but Britain was taking a healthy cut of the profits off the top. Depending on which historian you ask, you could say up to 80, 90% of the profits. Yeah, 80 to 90 is probably close. The British had the country knowledge. They had the language skills. Can't be a good colonial power without those two. But the sun had set on the British Empire. The exchequer was bare. And so Sir Winston turned to the Americans for some help. It would take a very long novel or a very epic movie to describe the chaos, confusion, and tragic comedy of the Iranian coup. Suffice it to say here that they blundered through it, but ultimately it was done by brute force when a tank run by a co-opted Iranian military officer blew a hole in Mohammad Mossadegh's house. I see. And that assassinated him, did it? No, no, he lived. But in the end, it was brute force that won the day. And this, of course, put the Shah of Iran on the peacock throne, where he ruled with increasing force and repression until the people of Iran, who knew perfectly well what had happened back in 53, overthrew him, ushering in the present unhappy era of the Islamic Republic. I've got a question for you here, Tim. There's a recurring theme going on in this episode. It seems like we have initial CIA successes, or at least what they deem to be a success. And then in the end, it just comes back to haunt them. Do we have any successes for the CIA moving forwards through the 50s, 60s, 70s? Yes, indeed. In 1961, President Kennedy, then three months minus a few days in office, authorized the CIA invasion of Cuba, which came to sorrow at the Bay of Pigs. It was a humiliation. It cemented Fidel Castro in power, where he remained until his death, having outlasted 13 American presidents. And it emboldened the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, to try to secretly emplace nuclear missiles on Cuba. And, well, this would have altered the strategic balance of power because the American nuclear arsenal was roughly a thousand times bigger than the Soviet nuclear arsenal, despite loose talk of a missile gap that favored the Soviets that helped President Kennedy win election. And it was American-recruited Cuban spies on the island that first alerted the United States to the emplacement of Soviet nuclear weapons on the island that were deemed capable of striking uh, Washington and New York. It was then the relatively new U-2 spy plane that took the pictures of those missiles that were then shown to Charles de Gaulle and the British and the American allies in NATO, and finally at the United Nations that convinced the world of this threat and enabled the United States to essentially blockade Soviet military ships from reaching the island and enabled Kennedy to secretly negotiate with the Soviets and say, okay, you know we have missiles in Turkey. They're capable of vaporizing the Kremlin. We'll secretly take those out if you publicly take out your missiles in Cuba. This is an example of how espionage can prevent a war. So what we're saying here is that if it wasn't for the CIA and the intelligence they were able to get, then Khrushchev would have been able to put nuclear missiles off the coast of the United States. It's why the US had long since 
1823 Monroe Doctrine and the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary had wanted to have geographical dominance around the continental United States to shore up the new world. But if the CIA hadn't spotted that, then Khrushchev could have already been in place. And by then, it would have been too late. Well, that's not to say that Khrushchev would have unilaterally started a nuclear war. No, but the missiles would have been there. It would have altered the strategic balance of power, that's for sure. At the same time, going back to the last years of the Eisenhower administration in 1960 and continuing until the day President Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963, the CIA had been commissioned to do something about Fidel Castro. And in pursuit of this goal, the CIA worked with the kingpins of La Cosa Nostra in Chicago and Miami, the mafia, to assassinate Fidel Castro unsuccessfully. Let it be said that those not for want of trying. Didn't they try and attempt to assassinate Castro like 600 times or something? 600 is a bit much. There may have been 600 bad ideas floating around. Oh, well, let's go through some of those ideas, Tim. Poison ice cream cone, exploding seashells for when he went scuba diving. And then, of course, an assassin with a long-range rifle and a, and a telescopic sight. And in fact, on the day President Kennedy was assassinated, 22 November 1963, a senior CIA officer met with a Cuban defector in Paris to give him such a rifle. When President Kennedy was murdered, Lyndon Johnson, his successor, gradually found out about these plans and, you know, said in private, well, the CIA was running a damn murder incorporated down there in the Caribbean. God, it's crazy to think how much money, time and effort must have been invested in that over the years. And at one point, I was fascinated by these plots. And I think the exploding cigar is one of my favorites. But didn't they try and spray one of his broadcasting studios with LSD to make him have like a psychedelic episode during a speech? I mean, they are crazy. Here's the thing, James. Here's the important thing. Yes, there were various plots, some of them more sinister than others and others more harebrained than the first. But the officers of the CIA did not sit around in a bar on their second or third martini. And one of them said, hey, I've got a good idea. Let's go kill Fidel Castro. It was John F. Kennedy and his brother, Bobby, the 35-year-old attorney general who wanted Fidel Castro dead. In the 1970s, the Cold War history of the CIA was investigated by the United States Senate. The senator leading this investigation, Frank Church, made the pronouncement that the CIA was a rogue elephant trampling nations and people underfoot. No, that's not so. When the CIA trampled nations and people, it was not a rogue elephant. It was the rogue mahout, the elephant driver. And the mahout was the president of the United States. Very rarely, James, did the CIA do major missions of any kind without secret presidential authorization. And, I mean, it's understandable. It's a beguiling prospect to have such power at your fingertips. It's the reason from the very start of the CIA being developed why they didn't want to incorporate it into one big organisation called the FBI. They didn't want Hoover to have all that power to himself. And so you can see how a president might be you know, led a little bit astray or run wild with their imagination. And there is no period in history that I can see that this is more evident than post 
when the CIA gets uh, carte blanche to do as it wishes from the Bush administration. You're absolutely right. When the CIA was blamed for the success of the 9-11 attacks, it was clear to anyone who knew the history of CIA that it was being blamed for failing in, in its original mission, which was to prevent the next Pearl Harbor. The success of the 9-11 attacks, however, cannot solely be pinned on the CIA. It was a failure of the American government. It was a failure of the FBI. It was a failure of the Federal Aviation Administration, not to harden cockpit doors. After all, there had been hijackings galore in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. It was a failure of customs. It was a failure of immigration. It was a failure of imagination, and it was a failure of leadership in the White House. Nonetheless, the impulse was, as it had been for President Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs, to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the four winds. Wow. So it was deemed such a failure that the CIA just couldn't continue post 9-11. See, the director of central intelligence from the beginning had always worn two hats. He was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, but he was also the chairman of the board of no fewer than 17 different American intelligence services. The National Security Agency, which conducts electronic eavesdropping. The National Reconnaissance Office, which runs photo reconnaissance satellites. The intelligence components of the FBI. And he was supposed to take all of these discordant instruments and make them play off the same sheet music. So what happened three years after 9-11 was that the Congress of the United States, in its wisdom, decided to remove the second hat. The director of the Central Intelligence Agency, he remained. The director of Central Intelligence, that post was abolished and given to a new superstructure of an agency. There was a director of national intelligence now who was supposed to be the conductor of the symphony. But one thing that I find confusing there is that post 9-11, the CIA doesn't stop its involvement in trying to bring these terrorists to justice. In fact, the CIA is still the spearhead. You've got CIA soldiers on horseback going through the Tora Bora Mountains. You've got the massive expansion of the CIA drone program that's around the world today. So it does continue to be a major part of US national security. Right. After 9-11, the CIA had friends in Afghanistan from the days when the CIA was supplying, arming, uh, and financing the Afghan resistance to the Soviet occupying forces in Afghanistan. That's a country I know well. I've traveled there as a reporter seven times from the Soviet era into the American era. So it reestablished contacts with these people with the express aim of ridding the world of Osama bin Laden, who was headquartered in Afghanistan. And when 9-11 happened, the CIA was equipped, able, and more than willing to send a small cadre of several hundred paramilitary officers into Afghanistan to coordinate a military attack on the Taliban. And of course, we all know that the Taliban was defeated. The Taliban weren't defeated. I was there. I saw it. They melted back into the mountains and waited because they knew that one day the Americans would get tired. And they were right. The Taliban commanders used to say, the Americans have the watches, but we have the time. Now, after this initial apparent incredible success in Afghanistan, with the express consent and indeed urging of the president of the United States, George W. Bush, 
the CIA went back to its roots as a paramilitary force with the mission of killing al-Qaeda. And this is a mission it had had for a while, Tim, because we had Rick Prado on the podcast recently, and he was saying about being part of that counterterrorism section within the CIA, trying to you know, bring Osama bin Laden to account after a lot of al-Qaeda bombings before 9-11. But there isn't as much political interest at that point, and there isn't as much funding as is needed to try and do this. This is not a matter of money. This is a matter of the slow, painstaking mission of gathering intelligence against a secretive enemy in rough terrain. What went wrong, of course, is that in the hunger for intelligence, and again with the express authority of the President of the United States, the CIA began to torture captured suspects around the world. Now, in the UK, you have an official secrets act, which had it been the blood on your hands, the government could have kept that secret until doomsday. You can't do that in the United States. This is not a country where you can keep secrets for very long. This is a country where there are no secrets that time will not reveal. When President Obama took office in January 2009, he said no more secret prisons and no more torture. And I'm going to close Guantanamo. It became imperative then, if you could not capture these people and keep them, it was better perhaps to kill them. You can argue that two ways, that this was a kill or be killed situation, that there was always some even worse terrorist plot over the horizon. Or you could argue that by capturing people and interrogating them intelligently and not by brute force, you would gain more information. And in fact, it was through the interrogation of captured al-Qaeda operatives that the United States was eventually able to kill Osama bin Laden, and 10 years later, his second-in-command, Zawahiri. But you know, James, this era of relentless counterterrorism as the predominant focus of the Central Intelligence Agency really kind of came to a close around the time of the fall of Kabul. And what is fascinating is that under its new director, William J. Burns, who took office with the Biden administration, uh, now going on two years ago, Burns wanted to go back to the future and conduct espionage as the paramount mission of the CIA. And by God, James, sometime about a year ago, the CIA was able to steal the war plan of Vladimir V. Putin in his plot to attack uh, Ukraine. And not only his war plans, but the plans for deception operations that could provide a false pretext for war. You can count the number of times that the CIA has successfully penetrated the walls of the Kremlin with intelligence of this order on one finger. It is one of the most, if not the most, exceptional intelligence operations of our lifetimes. And by broadcasting them to a skeptical world, as the CIA did through the State Department in February of this year, to show that there was no justifiable pretext for it. And I submit to you that the intelligence work of the CIA has been very helpful to the Ukrainians as they resist with astonishing success 
So is this a key indicator of our changing world, the changing nature of geopolitics and the near-peer competition that we face into the future? The CIA, which was since 9-11 was more focused on these kill or capture missions, as you mentioned before, is now moving back towards espionage because it is more like a Cold War setting where they need to infiltrate the Kremlin so that they have that advantage and they can show the world what it is that Putin is really doing. Is this what we're going to see into the future as well? Look, if the mission is to kill them all and let God sort them out, you have a $800 billion a year operation out of the Pentagon that has people who can do that for you. The special operations forces of the Pentagon are very capable of killing people. If you want to conduct coercive diplomacy or truthful propaganda, you have a State Department that's very capable. But if you want to conduct espionage, if you want to, as Sun Tzu told us in The Art of War, to know your enemy. The CIA is supposed to be where you go to do that. Know your enemy better than you know thyself and you'll win a hundred battles. Something of that. So again, we are talking about ways in which every couple of decades, perhaps, a successful espionage operation can alter history for the better. Dwight Eisenhower called intelligence a distasteful but vital necessity. It is a dirty, difficult, dangerous business. You're going to get burned. You're going to fail more often than you succeed. But information is power in this world, and secret information is power squared. You have a good deal of the massive American intelligence empire that's been made slightly redundant by advances in technology once upon a time, not too long ago. The photo reconnaissance satellites had a unique capability of looking down on the world and seeing what was happening. Well, you have commercial satellites that can do that almost as well. And that's all open source information. The National Security Agency, which is in the business of intercepting electronic communications, has been swamped just by the amount of communications that have exploded all over the world in the past two decades. But if it comes to identifying, targeting, recruiting a foreign politician, terrorist, military officer, and convincing that person to commit treason against his own country on behalf of the United States, you've only got really a few hundred in America who can do that with any chance of success, and they all work for the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. You've taken us through the past the present and the future of the CIA, and you've done it so masterfully well. Tell us, where can we read more about the CIA? Where can we read more of your work? Well, I'm very fond of a book I wrote a few years ago called Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. That, that book is in print. It's now 14 years old. I'm working on a, a sequel to it, and I highly recommend it to your listeners. Well, we'll put a link to that in our show notes, and when the sequel comes out, we'll get you back on the podcast. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.